Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded at approximately 4.30pm London time on June the 12th, 2018. My brother Kevin's birthday, so happy birthday Kev. And nothing else really internationally was happening in the news. Well, apart from a small summit in Singapore, I suppose. But I'm, I'm sure no one, no one heard about that anyway. But it's my great pleasure today to, um, to have on today's podcast Dr. Joshua Freilich uh, from John Jay College uh, in, in New York. Joshua is a member of the Criminal and Justice Department at John Jay College. He is a creator and co-director of the United States Extremist Crime Database, an open source relational uh, database of crimes committed by political extremists in the U.S., uh, Freilich is the vice chair of the American Society of Criminology's Division on Terrorism and Bias Crime. He has been a member of START, the Department of Homeland Security, DHS Center of Excellence, since 2006, and, and is on its executive committee since 2010. Josh is on the GTD's advisory board, and his research has been funded by DHS and the National Institute of Justice. His terrorism research focuses on the causes and responses to terrorism. Recent works have looked at county-level variation in extremist violence and the efficacy of interventions to counter this violence. Joshua's other research looks at bias crimes, measurement issues, and environmental criminology and crime prevention. Josh, thank you so much for being on today's podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So, how, as with all of our guests, and We've actually done this interview before, but we had so, some technical issues. So take two in this question for you. How did you first become involved in this area of research? Um, so I actually uh, started my PhD in uh, criminal justice at uh, SUNY Albany in uh, 1995. Um, and later that year, uh, in April of 95, uh, in the United States, we had the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, which was committed by a supporter of the far right. Um, who debatably had uh, possibly some links to the militia movement. Um, but nevertheless, even if he was not a formal member of a militia organization, uh, he did subscribe to certain far-right um, beliefs and conspiracy theories. Um, so I became very interested in the, the militia movement and the paramilitary right. And my doctoral dissertation uh, ended up focusing on state level, uh, inside the United States, the 50 states, state level variation in uh, far-right activities, in paramilitary far-right activities. Uh, then in uh, 2001, I finished uh, my dissertation. I defended it. And later that year, we had the Oklahoma City bombing in the United States. Uh, and it was in New York, which is where I'm from and where I work. Uh, so obviously, uh, this had an impact. And it uh, continued my interest in studying extremism. Um, but I began to move away from focusing on deviant movements in terms of why they may emerge or prosper, um, but to also begin focusing on the illegal activities, the crime focus. Um, and that really started um, my research in terrorism and political violence, uh, since at the beginning I noticed some gaps in research that I wanted to begin to help to fill. And what were these core gaps that you noticed? Uh, so uh, some gaps uh, that I noticed were, um, especially when you look at the United States, 
Um, the FBI has been charged with um, combating domestic terrorism. Um, so all subsequent uh, uh, prosecutions against terrorism are on the federal level. Um, but I noticed that in the United States, for a variety of reasons, there were a number of crimes that had occurred that were never were not designated as terrorist and were instead prosecuted on the state level. Um, and again, you know, that kind of just sort of struck me, because obviously, as we all know, terrorism is a label. Um, so these were not getting into the uh, the federal level there. Uh, and again, when you look at the definition of terrorism, there are many, many different definitions of terrorism. Uh, but by and large, the vast majority of definitions require the act um, to be violent, politically motivated in a violent act. A violent, illegal act is normally the phrase that is used. Um, but again, when you look at extremism in the United States and, and elsewhere for that matter, there are a large number of criminal activities that certain politically minded organizations commit that are not violent, whether it's terrorism financing, uh, whether it's some type of cyber activities, uh, or on the far right, refusal to pay taxes. Um, again, in the, the ISIS or the Al-Qaeda area, um, certain material support activities um, that may not involve violence, but that do involve supporting a designated organization. Um, so all of these acts would not be labeled as terrorism. Um, we're not saying, or I'm not saying that they should be labeled as terrorism, but nor should they be ignored since the same individuals involved in terrorism and their supporters committing these acts as well, paying attention to them um, could be useful for a whole variety of reasons, both in criminal justice. So I was very focused on criminal activities and trying to account for criminal activities generally, as opposed to limiting it to some type of um, label, whether it's terrorism or anything else. Yeah, and that, this is hugely important to, to not just look at the violent activity, but because we've become so blinkered if we're only looking at that, but to look at the the wider uh, activity, both the illegal and the legal activity uh, that these groups are participating in. In uh, the New York Times podcast at the moment, Caliphate, it's really illustrated really well in a recent episode where they're talking about, as you were yourself, the financial aspects of it, the, the nonviolent aspects. And that gives us a much deeper understanding of how these groups, movements and organizations operate as well. So at this time that you're, you've got this, this, uh, this research going on and these ideas going through your head, what external uh, literature was influencing you? Who within the criminal justice, the criminology field, or terrorism studies, whose writing was influencing you? Um, so, you know, we became very, I became very interested in the gaps in this research, and then eventually... In around 2005, um, I, I uh, had a fellowship uh, that I received from the Department of Homeland Security, uh, where I was able to go to start for the summer and focus on a research area. Uh, so I began collaborating with uh, Stephen Shermack um, on these types of ideas that we had just discussed. And this eventually led to the creation of the, the United States Extremist Crime Database. Um, and it was really designed to try and fill in some of these gaps. And when you look at the title of the database, it's called extremist as opposed to terrorism, because again, we wanted to convey that broader level of interest. Um, so one key piece um, that influenced us was uh, Gary Lafray and Laura Dugan's uh, GTD piece, which was published in uh, Terrorism and Political Violence. Um, what, what, interest, what influenced this in this piece was 
and they make this very clear both in this article and a subsequent book in 2015 from Rutledge, and they have Aaron Miller as a third author on that one, um, is that when you look at the, um, the traditional sources of data that criminologists rely or use when they study crime, uh, regular crime, quote unquote, um, you're normally talking about official data from the government. Uh, in the United States, that could be uniform crime reports. Uh, it could be local police data. Uh, but you have uh, official data. Uh, you have victimization surveys. And then you have what is referred to as self-report uh, surveys or interviews where you talk to the offenders themselves. Um, all three of these sources um, are less amenable in the terrorism context. Um, there are all sorts of works that point out the difficulty of getting data on terrorism from governments. Um, there's definitional issues, there's political issues, et cetera. Uh, it would be very difficult to, to do victimization surveys, especially to capture fatal attacks, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and then for self-reports, um, you could do it, and, and many people have done this for many um, movements and conflicts across the globe, but it would be very difficult to get a national level estimate. Um, in addition, when you look at um, self-report studies in the United States or elsewhere, you know, these longitudinal delinquency studies, they normally bound the data, they do the interviews at, at intervals, whether it's a year, two years, or three years. Um, that's very difficult in the terrorism context. So the traditional way of studying these activities that we get from crime are much more difficult in the political violence uh, context. So what Laura, what Dr. Lafray and Dr. Dugan and subsequently Dr. Miller pointed at is that you can rely upon what is referred to as open sources, um, publicly available information, um, primarily media, but not limited to media in all cases, to gather information um, so that you could code attributes that you're interested in related to uh, on the incident level or even in some cases the offender level and other units of analysis. So that was one key piece. Um, that influenced us since, since with the ECDB, we also rely upon open sources. And let's talk about the ECDB, the United States Extremist Crime Database, because this is one of your, your own piece of research that, that you've put forward. Um, could you, like you, you've, you've started to describe it there, could you let our listeners know exactly what, what is contained with, within this um, what is the scope of this database um, and also where can they um, access the database and uh, research that's being carried out using it? Uh, absolutely. So uh, the United States Extremist Crime Database is a collaborative study. Um, I started it with uh, Dr. Stephen Sharback from Michigan State University. Um, we began in the summer of 2005. Um, I mentioned the, uh, the fellowship that I had at start. And then subsequently, over the next number of months, we wrote a proposal and we were funded. And the project really began in early 2006. And we've been working on it ever since. Um, it, it was initially funded and primarily funded by the Department of Homeland Security, uh, both from direct grants and then a number of subsequent grants from DHS, but through the START Center at the University of Maryland. Um, I say that because we had a number of grants, um, we didn't build the ECDB that I'm gonna describe now all at once. Uh, it was really built sequentially. Um, different grants funded different parts of it. Um, so right now, um, leaving aside the individual pieces that kind of made it, made up where we are now, right now we focus on the American far right, um, Al-Qaeda and affiliated movements uh, very broadly operationalized. So it would also include 
all those supporting global jihadist principles. So it would be ISIS, it would be al-Shabaab, um, and other such movements as well. Um, and then also far-left extremists, um, in particular animal and environmental rights um, extremists. Uh, for the far-right and for the al-Qaeda or jihadists, um, we've collected information on their violent attacks, which include fatal incidents, all homicides that they committed, as well as all foiled plots. Um, the far-right foiled plots are actually in progress still, but that should be that coding should be done by the end of the year. Um, so for both the far right and Al-Qaeda, we have completed fatal attacks and foiled attacks. Um, and then we also collect their financial activities, material support activities. Um, and then for the animal rights and the environmental rights extremists, um, they've committed very few fatal attacks, um, less than 10, uh, and some actually less than five to be, to be more precise. Um, so we focused on their most violent types of activity, which is of great concern to the American government um, until recently, and which has created a lot of financial da damage, and that is their bombings and arsons. Um, so we collect this information on um, a number of units of analysis. So the ECDB is a uh, relational database. And we have code books, and we collect information on the incident level, um, so on the homicides, the full plots, um, the financial schemes, um, so all of that incident or scheme level information. We also collect uh, offender level information. We collect victim and target level information. So if there's a person, we collect information on the person who was victimized, from a homicide victim, for example. Um, or if a building was attacked, we will collect information on the target. Um, and then we also have an organizational level of our um, codebook where for those individuals who are part of an organization, uh, we've coded characteristics of the formal group that they were a part of. And then finally, we have a, an assessment codebook, uh, which is related to measurement issues. So it collects information on the type of open source information that we've uncovered um, on this particular case and individuals involved in the case, and also very rough assessments of the quality of that information in terms of reliability. Um, one other thing that I should point out about uh, in terms of uh, the use of open sources is uh, most people, when they hear open sources in terrorism research, uh, they immediately think media accounts, newspaper articles. Um, and that actually is true in the sense in that for ECDB, probably 75 to 80% of the publicly available information we find and use to code our attributes are coming from media accounts. Uh, but I, I just want to point out um, that open sources refers to publicly available information. So we're not limited to media accounts. When we collect information on these events and these offenders and victims and targets, uh, we also in some cases find information from watch groups. Uh, we find court documents. A lot of indictments are publicly available online for the financial cases. In some cases, there might have been a civil action beforehand. In many cases, that, that information is available online as well. Um, so there's additional information um, on top of media accounts that you can rely upon to gather information on these cases. Um, in addition to newspaper articles, I should point out for not, not the majority of cases, but for some cases, you have books or in-depth works by both scholars and journalists that have been published that from a coding point of view, in some cases contain a wealth of information relevant to the attributes that we're interested in.
No, this is this is really important to to point out, especially like yeah, as you say, when people think open source, they generally think media accounts, but there's there's a lot more to it than that. One of the things that really that I really love about this database is is that inclusion of failed and foiled attacks, uh, failed and foiled foiled plots, um, because this again gives a more all encompassing understanding as well as the illegal. Uh, financial activities of these of these groups but sticking with the failed and foiled plots what what extra challenges face you in in coding and finding the information in relation to these that you wouldn't face in relation to the to the fatal attacks and that is a great question um it it actually um was a bit of endeavor a bit of an endeavor focusing on the failed and foiled plots uh, when you get into the literature, you see that there has been important works done before. But very similar to the terrorism literature, when you look at the definition of terrorism, it's so hard to get a consensus. Um, there really was no uniform way of looking at foil plots. Um, some people focused on the offenders involved. Um, some focused on clusters of people acting together to attack a variety of targets. Um, so there was a lot of ambiguity. Um, so one thing that we realized when we began thinking pretty carefully about foiled plots, is that what people were referring to as foiled plots actually encompassed disparate types of activities. Um, so one thing that we did was to create a typology of foiled plots. Um, and this kind of gets to your point about some of the differences that we see in, in comparing it to the fatal attacks um, relating to the specificity of the victim or the target. Um, so some foiled plots for want of a better expression, are pretty simple. Uh, you and I, we decide to assassinate a prime minister or a president on this particular day. That type of activity is pretty similar to a homicide in the sense that we, we have a precise target, right? And we have a precise, let's say, ideally, the day that we're going to do it. So we can pretty much hone in pretty specifically, let's say, temporally and spatially. But other types of plans are more amorphous. Um, so we created a typology focused on the specificity of the target or the, or the proposed victim. So our, our category one plots refer to cases or activities where you have a clearly defined target, right? Where you can uh, pinpoint, pinpoint that facially in some cases for a building, the White House is going to be attacked. You know exactly where that is. Mm -hmm. And you can tie it in, let's say, uh, temporally as well that you have a pretty good idea when the attack is going to take place. So it's a pretty it's pretty mature in terms of the level of planning. But then we have activities that we refer to as category two plots. These are cases where overt activities were taken. So it's not just idle chit chat, where some type of action was taken to carry it out. But it is not yet matured into the level of detail that we saw in the first category. So we had cases where people were going to bomb synagogues in the Bronx. They were going to attack police and soldiers in D.C. So you have some level of targeting, but it's nowhere near as precise, right? There could be multiple, let's say, military bases in the D.C. area, and multiple soldiers. You don't have that level of specificity that you have with the White House, right, where you know exactly what is going to be attacked. Um, so we, we refer to those cases as our Category 2 plots. And in a sense, you can tie it in with the homicides, and that all kind of relate to how far along you're progressing, right? The level two plots would be the less mature, and obviously the fatal attacks 
would be those that are completely successful. Mm -hmm. I mean, you would have the category one plots where they wanted to kill and attack. We know what they were going to do. They just weren't able to do it. No, it's, it's this level of detail that really, really makes it a, a worthwhile and strong database. And I'm really uh, one that for those who are looking to set up their own database, there are great lessons to be learned from the approach that um, yourself and Steve Shermack and, and other colleagues uh, took in the creation and the, the continued development of this database. With that in mind, what, what advice would you give to people with your experience of developing this and continuing to, to, uh, to work on it? What advice would you give to anyone who's looking to, to set up their own database? And what challenges did you face? Yeah, um, well, one thing that, that you kind of have that I guess is a plus uh, in some sense is that by focusing on the United States, we have a much lower end than, let's say, the GTD. People believe it has 110,000 cases in the latest version. It might even be higher by then. But the latest version that I've seen, there's 110,000 cases. Uh, we have much, much fewer cases in the United States. So even if you have a wider geographic range, uh, maybe starting with a smaller time period, because what that allows you to do is you begin to, to focus on your finite end. You can become very familiar with the type of sources and avenues available for you. So one thing that we saw with CDB is we were able to work with our PhD students and our master's students and our undergraduate students. And a number of them use the ECDB for their doctoral dissertation, their theses, and even undergraduate, um, you know, the theses for their major. And a number of our students, uh, Will Parker and Jeff Grunwald, uh, Kali Mills, many others, uh, they became um, very innovative in terms of tracking down sources um, to fill in the values for that part of the ECDB that they were most interested in. Um, and again, you could probably do that globally as well, but when you're focusing on a particular country or region um, and there's a finite end, it really gives you the opportunity to dig very deep and to try and it's almost do an inventory of going way beyond just scratching the surface, but figuring out what types of sources are actually available that you can tap into um, and to identify cases and to get the values um, that are reliable and valid so that you're pretty confident in your data. Yeah, no, the, this is, and like the, this focus that you're talking about, it's, uh, you bring that even, even more into focus when we're going to talk later on about when you're looking at county level uh, variation in extremist violence. But that's something that we'll touch on later on in, in today's podcast. And we're actually going to, uh, in a while, talk about uh, not just the ECDB, but the the utilization of it for analysis when you're comparing extremist perpetrators of suicide and non-suicide attacks in the US. But as I said, we'll touch on that a bit later on. But let's go back to that research that was influencing you. You specified um, that uh, the piece by Ron Clark and Graham Newman, Outsmarting the Terrorists, uh, was another piece that has influenced you greatly. Why? What is it about this? this that, uh, that has influenced your career and influenced the way that you think about analyzing these topics? Uh, yeah, so criminology, yes, is not my point. It's just a, a repeat of what many others have noted. In a sense, it's come late, later to the study of terrorism. Uh, historically, terrorism researchers have come from psychology 
in political science. Uh, not surprisingly, psychologists have tended to focus on individual offenders. Um, and political scientists, not, not in all cases, but in many cases, have focused on grievances, which kind of makes sense because it's consistent with their own uh, disciplines. Um, but we know that situational crime prevention, which comes from the field of criminology and criminal justice, um, has tended to downplay uh, a focus on offenders and to instead a highlight a focus on the criminal event or the criminal situation. Um, and the goal is to reduce opportunities to commit crimes, uh, to eliminate or reduce provocations during particular types of events that can provoke individuals to commit crimes, to try and reduce these cues, um, and to um, manipulate the environment um, and to uh, conduct or to uh, make or implement, I should say, specific interventions or strategies um, to remove these opportunities, provocations, and cues, and thereby reduce the amount of crime committed and or ideally prevent it entirely. So we know from the study of crime that situational crime prevention has been successful, um, right? I mean, in some cases, uh, there, there has been a number of studies, uh, both individually and in terms of the literature overall, that have found support uh, for situational interventions. Uh, so what Clark and Newman did in 2006 is they took the ideas of situational crime prevention and they applied it to terrorism. Um, and they argued that similar to quote-unquote regular crime, uh, you could conduct, you could craft situational interventions that could make the carrying out of future terrorist attacks more difficult and thereby reduce the, the amount of terrorism occurring in society. Um, so that book influenced me uh, because as criminologists, we tend to focus on crimes, right? And that's what you have over here. There's much less of focus on taking out individuals and incapacitating them, whether you're talking about drone strikes or Guantanamo Bay or other types of policies. Um, these policies, you know, it's difficult in many cases to evaluate their effectiveness, but from a situational point of view, uh, this is really more secondary. Um, the argument would be is you're more likely to obtain prevention benefits by focusing on the events of terrorism. And what Clark and Newman did in the 2000 book is they highlighted what they called the pillars of terrorism opportunity, which I'm not going to go into in great detail, but they argued by focusing on the weapons that terrorists use, the weapons that they use, as well as their targets that they might strike, you can um, intervene to make terrorism more costly and difficult for the terrorists to accomplish and thereby reduce it. And this is one of the great advantages of applying uh, criminology and crime science to the analysis of, of terrorism. It's taking away that the political motivations. It's taking away what a lot of, say, the international relations or political science analysis would, would look at. And it's looking at the crime itself. It's looking at the situation of the crime. It's looking um, at the activities um, and not always the motivations behind it. And it can allow us to, to really get uh, a different understanding and a different focus from it. And we can see the, the influence across um, across the, the research that you've specified as influencing you, but also we can see the influence of criminology a lot more in recent years um, in the study of terrorism. 
And one of the pieces that you've put forward for your own research, um, it's something I've, I've mentioned briefly already, uh, came in the Journal of Quantitative Criminology. It's investigating the applicability of macro-level criminology theory to terrorism, a county-level analysis. Could you give our listeners an overview of what um, you mean when you're talking about macro-level uh, criminology theory and what, what way did you and your co-authors approach this piece of research? So, um, as you noted, uh, one last thing I just want to point out about situational crime prevention and terrorism, and I should have said this up front. I mean, you're right. I mean, the focus is on behaviors. Um, but what some people have noted is, and they've actually pointed to the example of Great Britain and the, uh, the Irish conflict, the Northern Ireland conflict, I should say, is that some of the uh, policies that Great Britain took were actually consistent with a situational point of view or position. And what that did was it bought time and it allowed a peace process to eventually take hold. In a sense, it wore down the terrorists and then kind of encouraged the negotiations to then take place. Um, so situational crime prevention and a focus on more distal factors don't necessarily need to be in complete conflict. They, they can, in some sense, complement one another mm-hmm. as well. That would yeah. be more policymakers. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of the JQC piece, uh, as you noted, uh, being trained in criminology, uh, we were very curious to see if so-called regular criminology theory could account for political violence or terrorism. Right? And there's arguments to be made on both sides. On the one hand, terrorism is a crime, right? especially if you're successful. It's quite possible you would have fatalities, so it could be categorized as a homicide. If criminology could explain homicide generally, why couldn't it explain terrorist homicide? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, one could argue, well, it could be different because regular crime is usually the product of greed or revenge or what is referred to as personal motivations. Whereas terrorism normally has a political element that's ideological and it, since, it's, since it might be, or, or since it is being committed for an ideological, to further an ideological point of view, it's different and therefore maybe a different theoretical framework is needed. So this was kind of the debate um, that we wanted to shed light on to see if, in fact, criminology theory could speak to uh, these, these acts that had a political element in it. Um, so we focused on the United States on the county level, and we um, utilized long-standing theories of crime from criminology that had been designed to explain macro-level, act- uh, macro-level variation in crime. Uh, heavy emphasis on social disorganization theory, but also other frameworks as well, whether it's animal, whether it's an anime framework as well. So we took some of the um, the major um, attributes that people have tested on regular crime, and we wanted to see if we could use it to explain the politically motivated uh, fatal violence in the United States on the county level. Uh, one other point that we were interested in, and we didn't really reach any finality on it, but it's just an issue that we touch upon in the study is. And it's more of a theoretical issue from criminology, but it also has, intra, um, has implications for terrorism. Because a lot of these theories, um, they're designed to explain where the event occurred, right? That's what they're being used for, I should say, as opposed to design. They're normally applied to account for variation in where the crime was committed. But if you look at the processes in terms of people living maybe in disorganized areas and lacking control, in a sense, you're looking upon influences on the individual in terms of where they resided as opposed to where they may have actually committed the crime if those occur in two different locations. So we just sort of noted that this is an issue that oftentimes gets conflated 
But in actuality, you know, there might be differences in terms of where the individuals who commit these crimes actually resided, right? As mm. opposed to that actually committed the crime. Yeah. Uh, but I'll stop now to see if you have any comments on anything that I've said so far. No, no. I think, I think that's a really, it's a really important, uh, important point to make. It's, um, it can often get, they, the two can often get conflated together. The the where they reside and where the crimes are committed. So it's it's definitely it's definitely one worth emphasizing. With in relation to in, to this to this piece and in relation to your findings, one of the the key findings that you you put forward is that far right perpetrators are less likely to reside in counties with high poverty. What um. What do you feel is the explanation behind this, or do you and your co-authors feel that you do have uh, an explanation for this? Yeah, this was a really interesting finding, um, you know, as you just said. Um, so when we, when we found it, we were trying to make sense of it. One thing um, that we realized is that obviously we were conducting a macro-level study, right? So we were focusing on characteristics of the counties. Um, and in a sense, it seemed to go against the theories which would argue that you would expect this to occur in more impoverished counties, right? We weren't finding that. Um, but what we did was we went to some of the studies that are focused on far-right terrorists and others um, on the individual level. And a lot of this research indicates that the on the offender level, you're actually dealing with people from a deprived population. So in other ECDB studies, we've shown that close to 40% of far right is to commit homicide in the U.S., politically motivated homicide, um, were unemployed at the time of the crime. That's obviously much higher than the general population. Brent Smith has shown this with his American terrorism study data as well. In fact, he was the first one to show this um, over 20 years ago. Um, so what we said was it's interesting that maybe we could combine, you know, speculate based upon these individual level findings. So based upon the individual level findings, you would have far-right offenders who were you know, overrepresented in terms of poverty on their, on, in their own circumstances, right, committing the homicides in these counties where there was less poverty at stake. Mm -hmm. And we argued that it could very well be some type of relative deprivation going on, right, that these individuals are living in counties where most of the people around them um, are doing, uh, are, you know, are not impoverished, right? Mm -hmm. They themselves are. Um, this causes dissatisfaction, so they lash out at their ideological enemies. Yeah. Um, that's a point that we raise in the discussion and we call for further research on it. So it was a way to try and make sense of our findings, but by drawing upon other empirical level findings um, to do so. Yeah, no, it's 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 one that I think for, for anyone reading this piece, it's one that will definitely stand out. And another another finding that stands out uh, upon upon reading it is that religious diversity is significant but racial diversity in the at the county level was not seen to be significant um what was what do you feel is behind this behind this finding another interesting finding and again when we saw it we wanted to spend some time to think it through and here too we tried to uh, we tried to set forth possible explanations for this based upon other empirical level, other empirical work that has been conducted. Um, so on the one hand, religious diversity was significant on the county level, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but the racial diversity was not. But we also know from when we look at, uh, at the victim level or targeting level of our data, 
from the far right, we know that the majority of targets that far right has slashed out on their ideological violence are actually racial minorities, right? Um, Anti-government uh, or police officers are usually two, but anti-African-American, anti-Latino, um, and other racial and ethnic groups, that's the number one category of fatal attacks in the U.S., around 50%, over 50%, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, so we know that these are the, the types of homicides that are occurring, but they're occurring in counties where there is religious diversity. So what we, what, we, what we said was we know from other research going back 40 years, but consistently in those 40 years, some of it ethnographic, that the leadership of the far right tends to be very focused on religious enemies, primarily the Jews. Whereas a lot of the far right followers, they might be anti-Semitic, but they haven't really met Jews in some cases. So it's less of an influence on them. And they are more concerned with racial minorities. That's what a lot of the ethnographic research has shown. So we speculate that perhaps the leadership is focusing on counties in terms of their, their enemies, right, where they reside. Mm -hmm. They are encouraging or having an influence on their followers to attack. So that's why these attacks occur in this county with, with religious diversity. But when the, the rank and file commit the homicides, they lash out at the enemies that they're most concerned about, which are the racial and ethnic minorities. Oh, this like... I, I cannot recommend this article enough to, to our listeners. It's, it's what terrorism research, I think, needs, going down to that, that local level, going, not, not just looking at a broad national level, but going down to the county level. And you could even go a lot more local than that, I suppose, as well. But it's, um, it really throws up some, some very interesting findings and it gives us a greater understanding of, uh, of these, these terrorist actors there. The, their their surroundings the where they're residing as well as where they're taking place their activities are taking place with respect to the macro level uh, criminological theories how did you find uh, their applicability after doing this research do you think that they are um, that they are applicable to this the this form of analysis yeah, I mean overall we found some support but perhaps not surprisingly you know even based upon some of what we've discussed um, some things worked as predicted, others less so. So the conclusion was to keep applying it, but to refine it um, for the terrorism context. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah, we we do always need to refine refine the these theories when we are looking to apply them as well. We throughout the throughout the discussion, it's clear that your your primary focus is on in this in this aspect of your research looks at terrorism within America. And the last piece that you focused on, that you say influenced you was the 1994 piece by Brent Smith, Terrorism in America, Pipe Bombs and Pipe Dreams. While the Clark and Newman and the, the GTD piece would be well known to, to many of our listeners this piece mightn't be as well known could you give a give an overview of what this uh, what this was about and how it, it has and continues to influence your work yeah, uh, i really couldn't recommend this piece enough uh, it's a seminal piece uh, uh, the book by brent smith is actually published in 1994 um, so that was the first edition so it was published before 9 11 and before Oklahoma City. So Dr. Smith has been studying domestic terrorism in the United States, um, you know, for many, many years, right? And it wasn't just due to these attacks. But the beauty of the book, um, 
by Brent Smith is a few things. One is by just focusing on the United States, and we kind of mentioned this before, it provided an opportunity that because you have, for want of a better expression, a finite end, you could really dig very deep. Um, and you see that in this book in terms of just by having this manageable end, you could really go pretty um, beyond the surface to focus on a whole variety of issues. Uh, that's one benefit. I think the second benefit is this, this database, the American Terrorism Study, was initially constructed in collaboration um, with the Federal Bureau of Investigations um, and, and the government, even Congress, releasing some of the data to Dr. Smith, uh, to Brent Smith. Um, so the second benefit is just highlighting the benefits of collaborations, right? In terms of we, we have this difficulty of obtaining data, but in some cases, if you can build a relationship, you might be able to access that data. Uh, then in terms of the quality of the data, initially the American Terrorism Study relied upon trial transcripts and other, or court documents, I should say, uh, other types of government uh, government filings in the court system of terrorism. Um, that's a benefit because when you look at most researchers, they would argue that court data ha has a higher level of reliability than a lot of the other data, including even media accounts that myself and others have relied upon. But perhaps uh, the biggest strength of, of uh, Brent Smith's book is his demonstration through his empirical finding that to talk about terrorism in the United States globally or just overall in many ways masks um, important facts. And that is, he disaggregated terrorism in the United States across far right, far left, and international, which in many cases were jihadists, but not limited to jihadists. And he demonstrated important differences in terms of occupation, employment, religious intensity, where they live. Um, so this really varied depending upon which ideological stream of terrorism we were focused upon. And this obviously has very important uh, implications from a prevention point of view, right? And even if in terms of residency, um, if a particular movement is not residing in your area or planning in your area, then that should be less of a focus on you. And you should be focusing more on the movement that is residing and planning in your area. Um, so those are some of the strengths, I think, of uh, Brent Smith's piece. And um, where do you see, in which of the pieces uh, that we're discussing of your own today, which ones would you see Brent Smith's uh, research having the most influence, or is it across all of them? Uh, I think uh, um, in introducing the, uh, the ECDB, which we kind of talked about, uh, about before, uh, just by disaggregation. So when you're disaggregating violent from financial, uh, far right to jihadi, etc., uh, a lot of that is being influenced uh, by Smith's work. And the, the final piece that uses the, the ECDB that, that we're going to talk about today is the piece that, that you did with William Park and Jeff Grunewald and, again, Steve Shermack, where you're comparing extremist perpetrators of suicide and non-suicide attacks in the United States. Um, again, this is looking at far-right and um, al-Qaeda uh, perpetrators. Could you give, uh, give us an overview of the the overall aim of this research and what your core findings were. Yeah, uh, so the study is based upon the United States. Uh, when you look at suicide terrorism generally, I mean, it's a huge literature. Uh, there was a lot of stuff being written on suicide terrorism. And especially two, three, four, five years ago, it was even an expanding literature, right? It's not just a lot of stuff being written, it was increasing. Um, 
the one thing that we noticed when we looked at the literature is there was a lot of stuff being written, but most of it was not actually empirical. But when you look at the empirical research on people studying suicide terrorism, it was actually pretty limited in terms of geographical region. Um, most of these studies were conducted in the Middle East, whether Israel, Palestine, or Afghanistan, Iraq, and in some cases, Turkey, you know, which is in Europe. But you're really dealing with um, a finite number of geographic regional conflicts. Um, and what uh, Ariel Marari, who is another uh, dean of terrorism scholarship, has been studying suicide terrorism for a large number of years. Uh, he actually raised the point that it's an open question with, where, where, um, whether these findings would hold in other regions that have yet to be studied. Uh, so we began thinking, well, maybe we can look at suicide terrorism in the United States. In terms of victims, one of the greatest level of suicide attacks, or one of the most severe or damaging suicide attacks, were obviously 9-11. Um, that occurred in the United States. Um, and then in focusing on suicide terrorism in the United States, we realized that thankfully there were actually fewer cases consistent with 9-11, where you had offenders strapping on explosives or using an explosive device, blowing it up you know, against their target, and also killing themselves in the process. But we realized we actually did have um, some number of cases where individuals used other types of weapons, in many cases firearms, they committed attacks fatally or attempted to commit fatal attacks. And we know from the open sources that they expected to die. Um, you know, that they, they committed this attack. They wanted to further their ideology. And, and their expectation was to be killed with the commission of the attack or immediately after. And when we went to the, um, the suicide terrorism literature, we also realized that there was actually a longstanding debate in the field about how to operationalize um, suicide attacks, whether the uh, the self-killing of the offender had to occur automatically during the attack, whether an expectation would be sufficient. Uh, so we, we relied upon this broader definition, and we studied suicide and terrorism in the U.S., um, and our goal was to see whether some of the common findings from these overseas conflicts, whether they held in the United States, or based upon the United States and its unique, as with all societies, context, whether there were differences, and if so, what could be accounting for them? So we compared suicide attacks to non-suicide attacks in the U.S., uh, which was similar to what other people have done overseas. But we did this comparison inside the United States. And what were what do you what do you feel the core findings were here? Were the the international findings holding up? Uh, in some cases, yes. In some cases, we found differences. Uh, compared to overseas. Uh, but I should say that one key finding that we did find uh, was that, um, I'm sorry, <clears throat> I just have something in my throat. No problem. Uh, we found that offenders were more likely to have, uh, suicide offenders were more likely to have received paramilitary training. We know that for the Al-Qaeda offenders, this could very well have been overseas and since some of the, uh, the training camps that got a lot of attention in recent years. Um, so we argued that this finding obviously had implications uh, from the U.S. with all of the focus in terms of foreign fighters. People have gone overseas to fight. They might come home. Mm -hmm. uh, that could be an issue that deserves attention from policymakers. Yeah, no, definitely so. Definitely so. And what did you find in relation to 
and mental illness and and substance abuse as well. Yes, there there have been um, arguments made that suicide attackers were actually more likely to be suicidal compared, let's say, to other types of therapy. But again, you know, to study this, it wouldn't be enough to just look at the percent of suicide attackers who were mentally ill. You would the comparison group of the non-suicide attackers to see if there was in fact variation in that was claimed. Um, so we wanted to, uh, the argument is, is that um, some scholars had argued that using a terrorist campaign could be an excuse for some individuals to commit suicide, which is what they really wanted to do, but to kind of cloak it in a more heroic um, veneer. Um, so we wanted to see um, if in fact there was support for this argument. And we found that, that suicide terrorists were in fact not more likely to be suicidal um, than non-suicide terrorists. But they were more likely to have a history of substance abuse, which from a criminological point of view is kind of interesting because we know that regular offenders, right? Mm -hmm. uh, cases have linked alcohol and drugs. That's an interesting finding. Uh, they're more likely to have been loners, which kind of gets to your point. Um, this was actually a difference um, from the findings from overseas. Overseas, the vast majority of suicide terrorists um, are belonging to an organization, it's a group phenomenon, right? The group recruits the suicide attacker. In many cases, there's handlers who get them across checkpoints or borders, guide them to the target, lead them, and they commit the attack. So it's an organized activity. Uh, what we were finding here in the United States was that it was not um, a group level, that in fact, suicide attackers were more likely to be loners to have acted on their own. So that was kind of interesting. Um, and they were, um, this is perhaps is not a surprise, they were more ideologically committed to their cause. Again, you could argue that this would not be a surprise, right? Since yeah. in your life, you would expect the person to be truly committed um, to the cause that they're giving their life for. It, even even though it's not, it might not be a surprise. It's it's important to to check to empirically, empirically test these these uh, these hypotheses and just just may just see whether it does hold up. In relation to the uh, to whether perpetrators are more suicidal or not, how did you actually go about measuring this uh, the suicidality of of individuals? Uh, so again, we're, we're relying upon open sources, mm -hmm. um, and you know one variable that we were coding for is whether there was a record of attempted suicide in the past. You know, it was very hard um, because some people have talked about suicidal thoughts um, as an indicator. And, you know, we recognize that that could very well be an indicator. Uh, but relying upon open sources, it would be very hard to get it. You don't have that information in terms of what's in the offender's mind. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like what we, we said before. It was more a focus on activities, right? Where we were better able to try and tap into that through the open sources. Just in addition, right? You know, in addition to the prior suicide attempt that we tried to document, the other issue was, you know, diagnosed mental illness, which again, you're relying upon the open sources. Mm -hmm. that reference to this diagnosis being moving moving on from that to the final piece that we have um that we have today it's your your piece that you did with uh, steve Shermack and jeff grunewald a future the future of terrorism research a review essay and this ties in nicely with the the final question that i like to ask um most of our most of our guests it's about how they feel the 
the area of terrorism studies is at the moment. But you've actually you've gone ahead and written a review essay uh, to answer that question. So what did you what did the three of you feel is the future of terrorism research? What direction is it moving and what direction should it be moving towards? Well, I think overall, I mean, there's definitely been um, a lot of positives in terrorism research. Uh, I think the, the huge investment by many governments around the globe um, to finance the databases, not just in the United States, but overseas as well, and not just on events and offenders, but we have databases now being created to track official responses to terrorists, you know, counter-terrorist activities, uh, which is really um, new, right? We didn't have it 15, 20 years ago. Um, all of that is very, very positive, right? And I think we see this, uh, and people have shown this empirically with the increasing use of empirical studies in terrorism as opposed to more anecdotal pieces um, that might have occurred in the past. So there's definitely been progress in terms of the rigor of uh, terrorism research. Um, but as with anything, I think there's also room where you could always just keep improving and do better. Uh, so one issue uh, would be a greater use of comparison groups um, or different types of comparison groups. So normally, you know, when you're doing quantitative research, you know, you're looking at variations. Um, so one thing, thing that um, terrorism scholars often do is they rely upon the data that they have and they use that to account for variation. So if you're using the GTD or the ECDB, it's very, um, you can do you can look at variation, let's say, in the number of attacks across counties, uh, right, or the number of terrorist attacks by an organization. So you're looking at variation in the ones, right, in, in the cases that occurred. Um, these are interesting in terms of why a particular nation might be having an increase in terrorism or a decrease in terms of that also regionally. Uh, but there would be great use to compare attacked to non-attacked, whether it's in terms of targets Right, to compare characteristics that were attacked to characteristics of the targets that were not attacked to identify differences. If you then go to vulnerability, which would be of great use, let's say, to those charged with combating terrorism. Um, some people have done this on the organizational level, but comparing violent and nonviolent groups, even though it's been done, you know, it's only in the beginning stages, there's a lot more to be done there as well. Um, but perhaps even more intriguingly, um, looking at those who subscribe to violent ideologies and are quite extreme in their beliefs, who never actually commit violence themselves. And that would be very interesting to see what distinguishes them from those extremists who share their beliefs but did the violence, right? What actually varies between these two types of individuals? Um, these types of studies you know, are rarely conducted, and, and a large part of it, I believe, is probably the difficulty of accessing the necessary data that would require creating a sampling frame, right, who's actually eligible for participation in each group, and then collecting the attributes on that, with all of which raises difficulty. These are hugely important um, uh, messages to come across, and while we might all think about the, the health of, of this area, might think about the health of this area of uh, terrorism research. It's important to get, to get articles, to get essays like this put together um, so we can really, uh, really get focused on what we can do better um, and how we, can, how we can improve what we're doing already. Uh, and a lot of what you focus on are the, the methodological issues, the measurement issues. And this is where we can draw on 
feels like criminology, areas like, feels like psychology as well, to really learn not just about what they, what their core findings are, but what their methodological and measurement approaches are. And these are, these are hugely important issues, issues to focus on. And that, that point of getting beyond the anecdotal, which to, has, has been a, a core, core aspect of terrorism research for many years is that anecdotal research. We, we do need to get beyond that. Um, and do you feel that like, you've been immersed in this literature um, for a while now? Do you feel that it's, a, it's in a healthier state than it has been before? Do you, are, would you be in agreement that, it is, uh, that terrorism studies is stagnating? Um. I, I don't think it's stagnating. I mean, um, there's obviously difficulties because of some of those data and methods issues that we both talked about. Um, but a comparison of where we are now, let's say 30 years ago, uh, I think the field is much more advanced. Oh yeah, it, it, it is, and this is what's been coming across from all all of our interviewees when we're when we're talking. Uh, talking about the health of the of this area where does your research go from here josh what's uh, what's next for your own individual research as well as the wider research um of, of the database as well utilizing the database uh, uh, initially you asked you know the availability of the database um, so parts of the ecdb are violent are, are fatal um, attacks both for the far right and the, the global jihadist movement uh, they're actually publicly available from the START Center as part of the TIVIS project, Terrorism and Extremist Violence in the United States. Uh, is a portal. Uh, so that data is available and can be downloaded. Uh, you can just query the data and pull out ECDB cases. And of course, you could always contact myself or um, Dr. Sharmak, Dr. Parkin, or Dr. Goonwald um, for help uh, as well um, for those interested in that data. Uh, in terms of uh, the ECDB, um, right now, we've been finishing up the foil plots in the United States. Uh, previously, we had done that for the, um, the Al-Qaeda and the ISIS supporters. Uh, we're, we're, we're increasingly intrigued with the study of, of cyber terrorism, not just in the United States, uh, but also abroad as well in other countries. Uh, there are similarities to the financial crimes in that this is not necessarily a violent act. It could be violent, but it's not necessarily always violent in terms of all of the online activities. Uh, there's also measurement issues involved in terms of how would you measure attacks when there might be victims or things targeted in multiple jurisdictions at multiple times. Um, so these are issues that need to be thought through, but this is an issue um, that we're starting to turn our attention to. Yeah, no, it, we look forward to, to seeing all that come out. And it's... Uh, as I, as I intimated earlier on, it's that 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 focus on the failed and foiled attacks is something that I that I really love about this research, and I can't wait to see see more more findings in relation to this. Josh, thanks so much for doing this interview again. Um, it's been it's been my pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for all your all your your research and anyone who wants to engage with any of the pieces that were discussed here they're all available on the the turk website uel.ac.uk slash t-e-r-c and uh, be sure to follow us on twitter at t-e-r-c-u-e-l and tweet at us with the hashtag talking terror and be sure to tune in next week where i'll be talking to 
Dr. Aaron Winter, uh, my colleague from University of East London, about his research on the far right as well. Until then, goodbye.